Perfect. This is another episode of Gang Grow Tame. This is how we start these, Kyle. You're uh, you're going to be wild, you know, with the with how we start these. But um, we've got another episode of Gang Grow Tame, and today we've got Kyle Poyer, right? Is that how you say your last name? Yep. Awesome. Um, and Kyle is an operating partner at OpenView, and I would say um, somebody that you're probably becoming familiar with familiar with on LinkedIn if you um, are active in there. Um, not only Kyle, but a number of other folks um, on the OpenView team. Blake, I think it's Sam is another that I see quite often, but always putting out very thoughtful content, um, especially as it relates to software companies. So um, Kyle, appreciate you being here today. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. You mentioned, I like to start off with a couple of icebreakers very quickly, uh, just to make it, uh, you know, make our audience get to know you a little bit better. So um, I'm a huge sports junkie. And the Masters is currently on right now, golf tournament. Um, so, what's your what's your uh, view rate of like the Masters or any golf tournament or like PGA tournament? Are you like a zero percent, fifty, hundred percent? Like, what are you uh, sports wise in, in terms of golf? Anything? <laughs> I'm about a fifty percent. So I actually uh, was a captain of the golf team in high school, uh, and so it's golf is something that I've played for a while. I always like was a bigger fan of playing it than of watching it. Uh, but you gotta, you gotta pay attention if Tiger is back in the game. Uh, this is probably going to be dated, you know, he could do horribly by the time folks are listening, but, uh, definitely makes things interesting. Yeah. Is he, still, sure. is he still doing well. He was doing pretty good yesterday, right? Yeah. He shot, I think one under yesterday or even, uh, one under, I think. And, uh, yeah, he's about to tee off in probably another, or actually he just teed off about 20 minutes ago. So he, as Kyle said, this is probably going to be old news. Like somebody's going to roast us. I'm going to be like, yeah, Tiger makes the cut or something. And somebody's going to roast us for old news, but, um, all right. Well, at least I'm not saying I'm rooting for Phil Mickelson in this Masters because that would really be dated. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that would would be a bad look, right? I, I, I didn't realize how like off the rails that guy was. I always thought he was like the. Like the the darling of the golf world, but I guess not, huh? Uh, I think under the surface, yeah, it's one of those people that uh, looked great on on the on the surface level, and then as you dig into it, I think people people knew some true stories. Um, all right, the last icebreaker, and then we'll get into the real content. Is uh, Kyle? I think you mentioned you're in Boston. Is that right? Yep, I'm in Boston. Awesome. What's a what's a perfect Boston weekend for you? And we'll say summer weekend. You know, summer's coming up soon, but like, what's a perfect Boston like summer weekend for you look like? Well, honestly, in the summer, I try to go uh, to the coast as much as possible. Uh, my in-laws have a house on the coast in Maine, and uh, that is the perfect place to go. It's like an hour and a half away. Can't nice. beat it. I'm, uh, yeah, that sounds... Jealous. That's I did great. a summer trip back in high school with my parents, and we flew into Boston, and then we drove like the whole... We drove north all the way up to the coast of Maine, went all the way around, and then like back to Boston. And I still think of that as like one of my favorite trips because... Uh, Hilton Head and Charleston, South Carolina during like August are almost unbearable. So like to get to the north for like a nice, cool summer, roughly cool uh, in terms of like the evenings and stuff. Um, so I like it. Jay, what are you what are your plans for this summer? I know. What are you, what are you doing with your three kids, Jay? Um, <laughs> this is a great question. We're going to Florida at least once. Um, I'm sure we have some other vacation plans. I don't know what they are. Honestly, you put me on the like spot. It. Yeah. Hey, that's all right. <laughs> it's, it's um, all right. Well, let's, let's jump in. I know, you know um, Kyle, maybe just to start with, we were just chatting before this and um, you've got a, a really interesting role um, here, you know, at OpenView. And so 
Uh, why don't you give us a little semblance of, you know, what it means to be an, an operating partner at uh, OpenView and what, you know, where, where do you get to spend your time? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely not a role that's super common, uh, starting to see it come up uh, more and more. But uh, just the way uh, my team works is we like to be the first resource that a founder or someone on the, the leadership team at one of our portfolio companies calls on when they've got a pressing strategic issue around growing their business. So that could be, you know, top of funnel acquisition, what are the right marketing channels, how do we optimize our marketing efforts, or maybe even how do we hire the right first head of marketing for our, our, uh, our business, or it could be conversion through the funnel, especially as more folks move to, to PLG models, you know, what do we need to do to drive more conversion from a free signup to a paid customer? Could be pricing and packaging, could be retention and customer success, you know, the Problems are really endless, uh, but that's what makes it fun. And uh, I think what allows us to, or allows me to play this role is that OpenView is an extremely focused investor. So the firm only invests in expansion stage software companies, uh, which means we get to develop pattern recognition around the journey these companies go through and kind of what they need uh, along the way. Kyle, what was your, what, what did you functionally major in before you took this, this role? Just curious. Well, my yeah, going back to college days, my I don't put my college degree to uh, to very good good use. I was an environmental studies and economics major, and I actually uh, focused my internships were about climate change adaptation, and I actually uh, <laughs> wrote a journal article around how cities are planning for climate change adaptation. This was like more than a decade ago. Uh, but stumble in, into consulting, you know, one of those careers that they kind of take yeah. anyone <laughs> if you're, you know, willing to put in the work. Uh, and so join Simon Kucher, Redmond of Undergrad, which is uh, uh, the largest okay. consulting firm working on pricing and packaging or pricing. monetization. Yeah. And uh, spent a good six years there, got to work with, um, you know, 25 plus businesses and mostly tech companies. And uh, so that was a great training ground for moving into VC. Oh yeah. I was, it I was just trying to do that. That's awesome. I, was, I didn't realize I was, you were the SKP. I was just trying to do a quick Google search on your uh, climate change dissertation. If it was out there, if I could go, go read that. I think that'd be it's, pretty interesting to bring up. One it's day. on Google scholar. It's <laughs> definitely different from the way I write now. If you follow me on LinkedIn, <laughs> you're like, who is this person? This doesn't sound like the same guy. But the economics piece that seems, that seems to fit. Right. So, what you do now. Yeah, it's um, and, and honestly, with environmental studies, one of the things that drew me to it is, uh, and and the combo with environmental studies and economics is that you're actually looking at existing ways of operating, right? That are probably polluting, but also might be things that are like wasteful, inefficient, costing a lot of money, and so you're looking for ways to drive like better processes that are more environmentally friendly, but generally justified with other benefits too. Like you don't yeah. generally look at things just around an environmental lens. It's sort of a triple bottom line. And so I would look at things like, hey, if uh, we're going to have more severe weather, uh, more heat waves, more uh, storms, what should be things that we should do as a society to prepare for them? And some of them might even be easy. Like when we're building roads, we should make sure that we're building them like a little further away from the ocean or further away from rivers. And a lot, it turns out that a lot of those things are just good to do independent of whether climate change happens. They're just sort of like no regrets, like no brainer decisions. Uh, and I feel like a lot of the, 
the ways of thinking about problems in this kind of environmental studies plus economics lens, like applies itself to software companies where every company is different. They've got their ways of operating, but there's things that they could be doing differently. Yeah, your point about the process piece too is really interesting because you think about that inside of a business, right? There's a ton of processes that happen every day between people, between tools and technology. And you're always looking and trying to evaluate, you know, is this process the right one for today? Is it the right one for tomorrow? You know, is there something better? You know, kind of what's the cost benefit analysis of us making that change? Um, so it's interesting the way you describe that, because I feel like that's, you know, part of, of being inside of a software company every day is that type of uh, mindset or analysis you have to kind of continually do as a leader. Exactly. And one of the things that's interesting in, in my role, like we're minority investors, right? We don't have, we're not like private equity where we take a majority stake and for better or worse, can kind of tell companies how to operate. We're an opt-in. And so uh, we've got to actually be genuinely helpful. And I think it like raises the bar, but it also means we've got to be able to do things like, hey, provide really like meaningful and data-driven insights around, hey, why is this going to help your business? Like, why should you make this, uh, this change in your organization? Uh, and so it, it, to me, it comes in handy. So, um Real quick, just to set a definition, right? How so? PLG is a, a term that's thrown out there. Product-led growth. Um, if I had to define it quickly, it's um, essentially businesses are building the product to essentially attract and acquire users. It becomes the main mechanism to essentially for growth. Uh, would you? Is that generally right? Yeah, generally right. With the thinking that, like, we used to think uh, sales and marketing was the like with what drove revenue. And now increasingly it's like, hey, the products itself have a huge impact on, you know, top of funnel, if it's a freemium product or uh, conversion through the funnel, if we have, you know, uh, great product experiences and self-service conversion or expansion, if folks are charging, being charged based on usage um, and, you know, re retention as well. And so, it's not none of the traditional uh, like ways of growing a software company like go away with PLG, but it's I, I like to think of it as like where are there very manual or, or resource intensive interactions from the like anywhere in the customer journey, and what can you do to turn that into product solutions that automate things, uh, drives better more consistent experience, and allows you to scale without adding a bunch of additional costs. I also think about um, like you talk a lot about a lot of different products that have very specific implementations in, in virality is part of it too. And I think with the connected nature of a lot of the, the tools that we use, you get an opportunity like through the, through the tools for, for people to see your brand. So it's almost like marketing through the, the product is such a pedestrian way to say it, but I think about like when Gmail launched back in whenever it was 2003, 2004, like everybody wanted a Gmail account because you had an invite only system and then you got your invite and then you talked about your invite and you sent people an email from Gmail and they knew it was coming from Gmail. And so it was just like this snowball effect. And you talk about Loom, you talk about a lot of other, I was reading one of your posts from earlier this week. I can't remember who else was in there. Loom. Calendly uh, is another good example. Cal oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you can't really use Calendly without sharing the link with someone else. Uh, and that's, I mean, that viral loop of someone creating their own Calendly account, sharing it with someone, that person schedules a meeting with them, 
that person can now sign up for Calendly themselves uh, and knows how it works because they just used it. Uh, and so that's a huge part of Calendly's growth engine. Uh, and it's increasingly kind of interesting to add on top of that. So you might have a meeting with, some, with a colleague and a customer. And so if maybe if customer success and sales are on Calendly together, that actually makes it easy, even easier. So if you're in sales, you might invite a customer success person to join Calendly too. So there's a ton of like interesting viral loops that can happen. Well, I'm curious, I'll put you on the spot. What's the most like, because you have all these industries in SaaS, right? You've got HR tech, you've got CRM, like a bunch of back office stuff. So if you had to look at all the, the platforms and, and, and think about the things that were like inherently the least viral of all, <laughs> what, is, what is the the least viral type of platform you've ever seen adopt a product-led growth kind of strategy successfully? Right. Well, I guess security <laughs> is probably the, uh, the number one because no one likes to talk about <laughs> security. They don't, uh, it, it's typically something that is like, very controlled, the, you know, CISO is the one making the purchase decision. They're buying really expensive products, uh, very sophisticated implementation periods. Uh, and I've actually, I met a company uh, just the other day uh, that's actually taking an open source approach where they, they get thousands of users to chime in on which IP addresses are likely malicious based on their experience. And then that actually provides data that's really helpful to everyone else uh, that might be looking to block traffic that, you know, is, is a hacker trying to, you know, get into their website, getting onto their, um, their digital properties. And so uh, they've actually taken this very open source, very viral approach to solving the security problem. And it's interesting because, you know, hackers work together uh, to try to uh, break in but generally businesses haven't worked together to stop hackers until now. Um, I already have, there's a tool that I've heard about recently, Kyle, uh, Tome, have you heard of it? T-O-M-E. I have, yep. Um, I already know I'm going to show Jay one day here soon and it's going to be Jay's like favorite, favorite next tool. But Jay, uh, if you look up Tome, it's basically like they're trying to, um, they're trying to get, so uh, they're trying to go after, PowerPoint and PowerPoint's been around since like 980 something. And so they're trying to create an updated version of basically, you know, PowerPoint has been updated since like the eighties. It's like the same kind of function. You you build a slide, you put stuff on it and they're trying to build a much more fluid uh, type of PowerPoint where you can actually like almost think of like embedding looms directly in this thing where you're like voicing over a slide, you're putting in videos and all these other things, but they like it's much much better looking than Zoom. Oh, man. Or, uh, it does sound does, does sound like something I like. But yeah. like, did, Kyle, does this set us up, in your opinion, to have like a winner take all in in each category? Like, is that what happens with these kind of platforms and that and why they grow so big? Is there room for everyone to be product led in this way? Does that question make sense? It does. I think for viral products, they tend to be winner take all uh, because there, there's often like network effects around it yeah, where yeah. the product works better the more people are using it. Like uh, if you, you know, if you're already using Calendly and someone sends you their Calendly link, Calendly can just show you the times when you're both available. So right. Like there's less work involved. So there's some interesting like dynamics there. Uh, but not every PLG product has to be viral. Uh, you know, I think virality is great to add to just about any product, but uh, 
to me, PLG just comes down to really trying to remove friction uh, and be, you know, available and be like a delightful product that users actually enjoy using and, and want to share with others. And so you don't necessarily need to be this kind of viral winner take all product to take advantage. How, how have you seen thus far, you know, as I start thinking about the PLG motion, um, you know, we just kind of define it as like this idea that uh, the users are, you know, at the end of the day, like the product is and usability is, is um, has such an ease of use that like people are naturally drawn to it. Right. And then they start kind of building this pipeline of users who can kind of move through. And so how do, how do you think you've seen thus far, like how teams in the PLG motion where it seems very, um, uh, very non-human driven, right? Like it's, if there's not a, a big sales team that's out there, you probably don't have large teams that um, like, I haven't really, I don't think I've ever interacted with somebody at Calendly and or Loom or all these, right? You've covered, you, they're very technology first. And so how do you think about the customer success motion? Somebody who's helping to drive outcomes or think about new use cases, or how have you seen that start to, to get handled in these PLG types companies? It, well, I think what, what's fascinating for these companies is they generally start with acquiring users and, you know, getting those users to see value. And so, you know, a company might end up with millions of users before they have a single sales rep. Uh, but what typically happens is that, you know, you've got a variety of users and use cases uh, experiencing your product. And if folks want to go from maybe individual adoption to team to maybe business-wide adoption, there's, you know, additional like questions people have. There's more advanced functionality that folks uh, need to set up. They might need help doing it. They might need migration support, you know, coming off another platform. They might need to even just like check that you have the security requirements to uh, fit within their, uh, their business. So what tends to happen is you get pulled in to adding these resources, adding sales, adding customer success. And part of it's like to really ease the burden from customer support because support is probably being inundated with these questions that they can't resolve, you know, on a two minute phone call. Uh, and so folks say, hey, this isn't actually making sense for support. And there's a lot of opportunity to actually generate more revenue, have closer customer relationships, uh, stickier products by layering in folks like sales or customer success. I think what the nuance is that they're typically working with folks who are already using the product. And so you don't necessarily need to sell folks. It's not like a combative seller uh, sales type of relationship. It's more that you want to work together to help educate folks around uh, what's possible and, and build kind of a shared journey to, to the finish line or the end state that you both are kind of excited about. And so to me that, whether you call it sales or call it customer success, sales in a PLG model almost always looks like customer success or it's a yeah. CS-minded person doing the, role, doing the job of sales. That's really interesting. That actually, I mean, and now you, now you think about it, it kind of makes sense, you know, because like you said, you're, um, you're also probably making those mechanisms easier, right? In a, in a traditional SaaS model, there are um, probably multiple layers of things that get bigger and like, contract negotiations and things that just require probably a much heavier handed touch from a salesperson. But if you can find somebody who can bridge the gap in a PLG that is sits more like an account manager in between sales and account management and customer success kind of sounds like that's where people exactly. are going. And, and one role that I find fascinating is the role of it's kind of 
it's called a million things, onboarding specialist, sales assist, you name it. It's essentially, you can think of it as like an SDR type of persona, but with a customer success background. So when someone signs up for the product that has, you know, the potential to be a very large customer, uh, they might be successful, you know, on a self-serve basis, but a lot of times, you know, they have extra requirements. They, they have more complex backgrounds. If you can give them this sort of resource that's available to walk them through things, answer questions, they often are actually more successful in the product. And then that kind of unlocks a bigger sales opportunity down the road. And so we're starting to see CS become almost a pre-sales role. Uh, with this idea of like, you can't yep. really uh, sell a customer that isn't seeing, seeing value in the product. And if you lost their trust in the first you know, week or first month, it's really hard to get that trust back. Yeah. Um, Jay, what's, what's something that comes to mind for you as you start thinking about, you know, as we're going and as you know, you think about this PLG company and you're starting to think about, um, you know, customer success, how they're trying to get values, use cases that are out there, how you start getting these customer stories. Like what's something that comes to mind for you that you're curious? Like, I don't well, know. I'm I was, I was just, like, I was just thinking like, um, all this is everything just getting inverted, right? Like going to, I, I think about the conversations you have to have with procurement. Cause when you talk about going from individual to team to business-wide adoption, that's when you go do a contract and you have procurement involved, but talk about neutralizing procurement. If you've already got full adoption of the solution down in the individual ranks of the company. So that's what was, I was just sort of like marveling at that while you were talking, Kyle. It definitely neutralizes a, procurement because it's very hard to take <laughs> a product away from yeah, folks who it, are successfully using it. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny. You think about um, usage-based pricing and that actually like adds to it. You know, developers often adopt products that, scale based on consumption as opposed to access. And right. so all of a sudden there's maybe hundreds of people in an organization that might be using the product and uh, starting to like really grow usage and spend really significantly. And then procurement comes in and is like, hey, how are we spending like tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> a month on this tool? I didn't uh, know about like, it. <laughs> seems like, you know, crazy, but it happens all the time in these PLG businesses. And uh, there's really not a whole lot they can do because you're so embedded. There's so many champions uh, that, you know, it's, and in some ways, like as a vendor, you have to offer a discount when you start moving to a committed plan, working with procurement. And so the, the power is in the, the vendor and working with procurement. It's not in procurement themselves. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the grassroots with the user. I like the way you said that too. Like you have so many champions. Like usually we think about, okay, who's our one or two or three champions when you're talking about like traditional enterprise SaaS, but what if you have hundreds of champions that all are, you know, super excited about the product? How, how does, uh, from just a business operations standpoint, does forecasting become more of a, of a problem? Uh, I think, I thought it was interesting. Uh, I think it was the last snowflake earnings call. Uh, the CEO, Frank Slootman talked about you know, the, the difficulties of their forecasting model and it's just truly hard to predict because it's all consumption based. So do you see that in these earlier stage companies as well, where they're, they have to build a new discipline around like how to even predict what's going to happen in their business relative to consumption? I mean, it's, it's very uh, tricky. I think uh, usage-based pricing and especially the combination of usage-based pricing and product-led growth, like 
make for uh, I think really interesting, really attractive business models, but ones that are super hard to predict. Yeah. Where a lot of times folks like way under predict what ends up happening revenue wise. And yeah, it's, it's exactly, as you said, essentially a customer could start using the product for free. Maybe think about a Twilio as an example. A uh, developer starts tinkering with Twilio, setting up a prototype, uh, you know, thinks, hey, you know, maybe Twilio could be interesting for appointment, remi- appointment reminders. Um, all of a sudden, they start sending appointment reminders to, uh, to like a pilot, you know, a small group, you know, maybe in a couple locations, and then to every customer. And then they identify, oh, actually, we might want to just use Twilio to also do two-factor authentication. Uh, or maybe there's, you know, five other use cases that they could take advantage of. Because they're not, you know, on a committed contract where that's pre-identified and the customer is kind of coming to you and your product with the use case, you don't know if, you know, this big enterprise customer is going to take off and all of a sudden they're spending hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of dollars, or if they're going to stay that free user that was never successful. And like the better you can do at providing a great product experience and great customer success resource, the like less predictable it becomes in some, in some yeah. ways because you just uh, drive even more value than you might have thought was possible. But I think that in, in this world, CS teams play a much more important role in predictability and, and uh, forecasting than they are than they play in traditional companies because they're the closest to understanding the customer, the use case, the relationship. Use model. And yep. you might even be, I know companies that have, you know, reviews on a monthly or maybe quarterly basis with the top hundred customers and really forecast at that individual level with CS uh, driving the, the conversation. Yeah. It makes, makes it total seems sense. Like, it seems like it puts pressure on two areas. So one, I, I keep getting back to almost like what started our conversation even uh, before we hop or before we press record, which is, it seems like PLG companies also have to get really good at non-traditional marketing. Like you have to get really good at storytelling and you have to get really good at um, trying to take these, these moments. We talked about virality, right? But take some of these moments um, that are even outside of the product and make sure that people can see them, can identify them. Um, and, and so I think that becomes a, a big part of, um, you know, you can't craft a traditional sale or a marketing team that says, Hey, let's go run display ads here, or let's go run face Facebook ads there. Right. It's like, we actually need to figure out how we um, kind of communicate these stories out of the product and get them into kind of viral loops or viral moments. Um, and so I think that's one thing that pops into my mind. And then two is I wonder, um, Jay, Jay and I, but like, I just remember two years ago or so we were in the consulting world as well, B2B SaaS customer success consulting. And um, we had both signed up for a product called Noom and OOM, and it was a weight loss app. And um, they did such a good job during that onboarding of asking you not your traditional questions. It wasn't like, how much weight are you today? How much weight do you want to be tomorrow? You know, it's like they were asking you questions about like, why are you in this? Um, like some of the motivations behind it, like what are some of these? And so I wonder if, if those style of questions and that style of kind of that onboarding phase becomes a part of these PLG companies to try and gather more predictability earlier in the process until waiting, until you have to wait for a CSM to get close enough. So I wonder if that's another point that comes in involved. I mean, that ends up being, uh, I think really critical. And a lot of times, uh, there's ways to lean on your community, right? So if you understand how your existing customers are successful with the product, what are their use cases? You could start to find how they adopt it and, and turn that into templates or recipes 
and then actually put those in your marketing of, hey, here's how you do X. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden you can actually put those recipes then in the product too. So folks can start uh, with kind of a template in mind as opposed to just starting from scratch with this uh, blank slate. And you see companies like Airtable is essentially like an Excel spreadsheet with automation, right? But they're not trying, I mean, they wanna be positioned broadly so they can be attractive for a lot of use cases. But folks tend to come to Airtable with something in mind that they're trying to do, some motivation. Yep. And if Airtable can can be found or discovered, like based on this specific job that someone has in mind, and then if you can get them to solve that problem or do that job really quickly, you unlock permission for them to start thinking about all the other ways that um, they can use Airtable. The really great PLG companies not only do that and tell storytelling that's tied to the motivations of the users, but also even bring in their community to start telling that story for them. I think like Notion has uh, such an amazing job with community. Notion, you can do just about anything with Notion and their community members create these templates. They can even actually sell templates through Notion's like App Store. That's right. Uh, They, you know, organize the Notion community meetups in Vietnam, I think their Vietnam meetup has like 200,000 people that are part of it. And so the community can actually be uh, on the front lines of doing this for you, which I think just adds another level because it's user generated, you know, you trust people that are in your community. You don't necessarily trust vendors. Uh, and so it's fascinating to see the kind of story being written by users. That is the, the, thing that I was sitting here thinking about was community too. I just actually slacked Jay and said, man, when you think about like we were just talking about earlier, right? Can you imagine the example you gave where it's like, you have a million users inside of like, you know, a couple of major enterprise clients. And it's like, think about the scale that's already there. And it's like, you then put them together and then they can collaborate and share on a product that's already viral. It's like crazy to think about that. The other thing that is just so you, um, I'm just thinking about my own use cases in this, in, in some scenarios. So like, um, we're in the midst of kind of building some backend pieces for Gengar Artane right now. And, and um, one of the things that we have is a Zapier uh, connection to our community that then pushes data elsewhere. And so that also just becomes this, I think more of a moment than I think we give it credit for probably in a traditional SaaS model is I'm over here telling people about how I'm using Zap to push data between tools. And then I'm sh- screen sharing and showing them that, right? And that's a, it's almost a viral moment in itself because then they get the ideas of like, oh, where else can my data be pushed, right? It's like, this connector, this pipe um, becomes such a, a vast part of the story. Uh, so I was just thinking about that use case uh, just yeah, directly it's, too. It's, well, and Zapier is also a great example because even though it's like an app-to-app integration platform, I don't think most people find Zapier because they're like, I need an app-to-app integration platform for my right. enterprise. It's like, hey, I've got this like contact from a type form. I need to send it to HubSpot so that I can email them how do I do that? And Zapier has like thousands of landing pages for all of these app to app kind of integrations and specific workflows that people have in mind. And they often outrank the vendors themselves that they integrate across. And so uh, if they can solve that specific problem and speak kind of the language the user uh, has when you know they discover Zapier, they just unlock a lot of permission to go deeper. But that's also where, you know, when you think about it, if you can lean on your community and really amazing marketing, that's the best you know, uh, thing you can do. But there's also just that kind of uh, hard to pin down like element that 
having an expert who's like a Zapier evangelist, having them hop on the phone for 30 minutes with this customer when they're first signing up, they can say, oh, you're in marketing. Well, did you know we actually have a really large enterprise that uses Zapier or XYZ to help improve their marketing? Is that interesting to you? Like they can start to like play the role of guiding someone and uh, inspiring them about what they can create. And I think it's a really exciting kind of role that CS can play in being a product expert um, in these kind of product-led businesses. Being a product expert seems like, seems like a big part of it, but then also being it, having some expertise on the types of problems. So you can ask a question like you just said, right? Like, Hey, you're in marketing, you know, do you have to track your advocates and make sure that (laughs) we're not overusing our references? You have that problem too. Cause a lot of SaaS companies we talked to have that problem like that. That's really powerful. So are you seeing industry like in terms of customer success teams that overlay all this or even sales teams or however it's, it shakes out. Are you seeing like vertically focused, like industry specific teams, or is it more like, okay, this is our enterprise person. And this is our junior SMB or mid market kind of person. Any, any context there or anything stick out? So I think companies are still experimenting and learning Uh, to me, the big, the, my big finding with these companies is because they have so many users, so much data, they're trying to try to translate that into like, what are the signals that predict that someone, you know, maybe could become a big account. Uh, And that's where we should focus our efforts. And so if you're a Zapier, you might be able to look at your data and say, Hey, our top customers tend to be in marketing at a company with, you know, X hundred employees and they use Zapier for X, Y, Z. These are like the highest value things. And then you can start to build like a product qualified lead playbook where if someone signs up and you enrich their email address, find they're in marketing and from this kind of company, that's someone that you want to put a rep on pretty immediately and really like have this playbook around what's the talk track. And I think over time, you start to build that, that library. You start with probably the most valuable ones and try to you know, see what you can do, see success with it, and start to apply that to more and more uh, ways of, of working with customers. Or, uh, companies these days, especially I feel like PLG have such an advantage if they can, as they're uh, starting their companies and building it, if they create what I think of, I guess, is like actionable data, right? Like everyone talks about how big data or having data is like great in and of itself. But um, a lot of times you find in businesses, and I think we found this when we were consulting a lot, right? It's like you had a lot of teams with a lot of data, but in order to actually action off of it, they needed to, you know, move it over to a separate database. You needed to put um, you know, data visualization on top, you needed to enrich the data. You need to, so there's all these steps in between, but I, th- I feel like, especially given the sales motion of these PLGs, right. Of, of trying to take a customer who, um, you know, one use case to many, or, you know, move up into a team type of environment because of all the data they have on the back end. It's like, they're actually more primed for customer success to come layer in on the right customers, at the right times. Um, and I think that also helps them from, marketing automation standpoint, sending, sending, now I can send just to your point, right. I can send Kyle a use case, um, before, or as he's, you know, maybe even thinking about it because I've got the the right data from the back end of the product to, to tell me that. And I just feel like so many businesses, um, that are coming from, you know, years past are, are trying to play catch up there at least. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and yeah, the goal is always to like talk to the right person at the right time, 
with the right message based on what you know about them. And I think PLG companies, because of the data they're able to collect, are, are in a better position than anyone else could do it. Uh, and it's, it is tricky though, right? Like if you're collecting thousands of data points, millions of data points, it can be hard to make sense of it all. Um, it, can be, it can be hard to figure out what's the right thing to do first or how to not get bogged down by all of the complexity and variety. And it's, you know, I think it's also just important to, you know, even if your customers are using your product in a self-serve way where they don't need to talk to you, having someone that is the voice of the customer that like understands the why, like why did the customer click this button? Like, why are they using my product? Uh, the qualitative insights and having that feedback in to the rest of the organization are still really critical, but they're not a default. Like they don't just happen because that is how everyone moves through the funnel. Like you have to actually engineer that into an organization. Yeah, that's that's the part that I think um, when you look at customer success teams that are trying to do a digital first strategy today, they're starting to learn that, I think, right? A lot of times you'd say, let's generalize, but zero to 90 days, you're in onboarding, 90 to 100, and it's just this time-based thing. And you just say, okay, you move from one to the next and we'll send you an email on day 91 and day 181 and this. And I think you're starting to see now that you know, we've got better data, we have better systems that it should be much more fluid, right? It shouldn't be, I mean, there should be, you know, I think Jay talks about this a lot. Like there should be um, kind of a, a value that we measure, you know, how many customers are getting onboarded in less than 90 days, you know, what percentage of those, you know, does that happen? Yes or no. And is that the right marker for us to look at and those types of things. But I think you're by and large, you should be now moving to a digital customer success strategy that says, you know, Hey, this is much more based on product triggers, the triggers of that person, um, the things that they're doing in our community and our other platforms that we can get visibility on that should be triggering much more of that experience than just a time-based model. Absolutely. The, the other, the other, uh, when you uh, going back to something else, you said, Kyle, about, um, like not being able to tell exactly what the use case is being implemented is like, we're a huge user of monday.com and, we, we expanded big time. Like last year we bought everybody a license to Monday because so many people were using it. It was the exact scenario we're talking about here, but how would they know like what we were using it for, <laughs> you know, unless somebody at some point was talking, talking to us, or maybe there's, maybe they're looking at the data, right. And saying, okay, well, this is just basic project management or they're doing onboarding here. But how would you know the difference? So I think that, to me, like the way that you go get that qualitative feedback, not from everybody because you sort of can't, or if you do have people like your um, sales assist or your onboarding specialist who are engaging, then having a way for them to collect like what those use cases are and feed that back into the system so that you're, you're sort of developing those use cases out, figuring out which ones need to scale or the upper, other opportunities in the market. Like how do we know which 200 landing pages to go build next and what message to 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 put out there around those solutions. So do you see, do these teams have um, these product led product led companies? Are they, are they putting a lot of product marketing around this to go have like, do that qualitative analysis? How are they, how are they, how are they getting to those insights on the actual usage and then scaling them? You know, it's uh it's still a work in progress. I'd say at most companies, yeah. Monday, actually, to your point, I believe is better than average. They talk externally about their big brain system that like is super smart around uh, understanding their customers and, and their marketing attribution. 
And actually one thing that, that they do is they started out pretty organic, but they've since added a pretty uh, major paid presence in terms of paid ads. And they're extremely data-driven around uh, reaching out to folks on even places like Instagram, TikTok, uh, Facebook, and they're they're reaching out to folks with a really tailored message and, and use case. And I suspect they're tagging all of that, seeing what resonates, optimizing it, personalizing even further. And they're hopefully tying the acquisition source and, and kind of what was the message when they're reaching users down through to okay, did this person actually adopt the product and what did they use it for? Right. Uh, so there's like a ton of really interesting things that you can do there. But uh, I guess to, to your question of like, who should do this? In, in the early days, this is often founders just, you know, emailing pretty much most folks that sign up for their product and being like, hey, like, just curious, like, what are you using us for? Uh, love to hop on a 20 minute call to, to learn more. I think there's, there's something about that kind of, uh, just talking to customers and learning. And even after, you know, 15, 20 conversations, you start to really have a much stronger understanding and start to develop pattern recognition. Uh, then I'll see companies use things like NPS surveys, mostly as a way to get qualitative insight back. Yep. Uh, and so I think there's a role around in-product surveying um, and interviewing. And so there's even tools out there like, uh, like Sprig that make in-product surveying really easy. And then they, these companies tend to say, hey, we, instead of hiring a dedicated function like dedicated uh, user research function or dedicated product marketing function, that that's the group that does the user research. I think increasingly you start to see a democratization of user research where like there's an expectation of as many people as possible trying to learn from users uh, and centralize that knowledge so that other folks can act on it. And so I think if you treat it as a problem uh, of one function, then, then uh, you actually don't develop the muscle across the organization. That's a huge point. It's like got to be baked into the fabric. I mean, we we talk about customer success the same way. If you have a CS team, that doesn't mean there's only one team that's responsible for making customers, you know, have good outcomes with your product. It's, it's everybody building the right product, selling it well, supporting it well, onboarding it well, all those things. Very cool. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I know we're getting towards the end here, so um, I'll try and, and summarize a little bit, but uh, Kyle is awesome here a little bit more about OpenView and how you all, you know, think about um, kind of the world and some of the companies you invest in. Talked a little bit about your role, how you got there, um, you know, try to, to talk through just a little bit more in depth about PLG companies and how customer success is starting to, to fold into those. And, um, and how that is playing into to digital strategies. So um, I enjoyed this. I like uh, a lot more knowledge for me kind of behind the workings of a PLG company, which I did not know before we hopped on this call. So uh, beneficial for me for sure. But um, if people want to find more from you, Kyle, and or OpenView, where's the best place to do that? Yeah, well, glad to hear it. And really a lot of the knowledge I've collected has just been coming from talking to folks that are like doing this really well. Uh, and uh, so I, I get a ton back from our community uh, that helps to kind of uh, educate folks about product-led growth. Uh, so you can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I write a lot there. And then I've also got a newsletter called Growth Unhinged, uh, where I share stories uh, and insights around kind of how to scale with product-led growth. Very cool. I like awesome. it. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right. 
This is good, Kyle. Hope you uh, hope you have a good rest of your uh, your day, and you know enjoy some of those those coasts up in Maine for the summer. Appreciate it, you guys too. All right, we'll see y'all soon. Will.